You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Today's episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. Happy Wednesday to you. We're doing herd mentality today, and I'll be honest with you, I think we're going to move herd mentality to Wednesday from uh, this point forward because Tuesday is just a better day for me to get myself organized and record the podcast for herd mentality to drop on Wednesday instead of doing all that prep on a Monday, which is a more chaotic day of the week for me and my schedule. So we're going to do herd mentality on Wednesdays uh, for the foreseeable future. Let's get started with David. David is actually my brother, and uh, he he sent this question into me uh, via a Twitter DM. So just like anyone else would send me an item, he did the same. And this is what he said. We have said on this podcast that blitzing Patrick Mahomes is where he kills you because it opens up a play to Travis Kelsey or a Tyreek Hill. But after watching the Super Bowl, a big credit to the Buccaneers' win was them getting after Mahomes. After watching the Super Bowl, we have one of the rare games that gives film about how to beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Is there anything you learn from this game that the Bills should be thinking about as they prepare for next year with they need to beat Kansas City to get to the Super Bowl? It also looked like Tampa doubled, uh, double teamed Hill and Kelsey. So I do have a lot of thoughts about some things that I learned from this game and uh, a lot responding to what you said about Patrick Mahomes and the Blitz and what Tampa Bay did. I'm also going to do a full podcast at some point here in the next few weeks about the entire script, I think, for the Bills to construct their roster and make schematic adjustments to compete better with the with the Chiefs. So you have that to look forward to. But specifically regarding the Super Bowl and what Tampa Bay was able to get done, I think you have to look at the dropbacks that Patrick Mahomes had and um, look at some of the pressure statistics that I think tell a story here. So Patrick Mahomes had 56 dropbacks. He was under pressure on 31 of those dropbacks. He was kept clean 25 times. He was not blitzed 49 times. He was only blitzed seven times. So seven out of 56 dropbacks, Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator for the Buccaneers, sent extra rushers. The key continues to be organic pressure. You have to get organic pressure on Patrick Mahomes. And what I mean by that is not sending extra players. You have to rush with four and drop seven in coverage. And how did Tampa Bay do that? Well, it helps to get organic pressure when you have Shaq Barrett and Dominic Sue, Jason Pierre-Paul, and Vita Vea as your four rushers, right? I mean, JPP has been unbelievable for a long time. Shaq Barrett's going to get a contract this offseason that's going to pay him north of $25 million a season. And Sue and Vea are a couple of uh, wrecking balls on the interior, and they're really big dudes, but they're powerful, and they can really challenge that depth of the pocket. So when you have dynamic edge rushers that can threaten the width of the pocket and Vea and Sue who can collapse the depth of the pocket, you got a real challenging situation to hang in there and make throws. And so that personnel uh, package and those players and how they complement each other really winds up being effective for creating pressure and bottling up 
that quarterback. The Buccaneers' defense also aligned in a two-high safety shell on 87% of the defensive snaps, 59 of 68 plays. And so what that alignment does is it takes away throws outside the numbers and funnels the passing game to the middle of the field. That makes the middle of the field open. When you have one safety in the middle, it's uh, middle of the field closed. When you have two safeties split, it's middle of the field open. Middle of the field open uh, wound up being a really good strategy because it funneled the passing game and took away certain areas of the field that Patrick Mahomes likes to attack. Now, part of being able to do that is having really good athletes uh, at cornerback and having physical players at cornerback, and and Tampa Bay has that. Sean Murphy Bunting, six foot one ninety five. He runs four four two. Had a vertical jump of forty one and a half inches. Jamel Dean, six foot one, two hundred six pounds. Runs a four three forty yard dash, forty one inch vertical jump, and a hundred and thirty inch broad jump. Those are sensational numbers. And then Carlton Davis, six one two zero six. Nearly 33-inch arms. He runs a 4.53, and he's more their their physical press corner. That you know, if you uh, you wouldn't put him over Tyreek Hill, but you can put him over Demarcus Robinson or Sammy Watkins, um, and, and give you a matchup guy like that. So you have big, long, rangy, physical corners uh, that can allow you to play that type of coverage. And then we have to be mindful of the linebackers that Tampa Bay has: Levante David, who's an elite football player. And Devin White, who is a young football player, but is one of the young, bright stars at linebacker in the NFL. And those guys are both rangy. They can play in space. They take great angles, but they're also super physical. So they just have this wonderful blend of athletes and experience and young guys that are physical with nice physical traits, and they can do a lot more with their scheme. And uh, they've really got a nice group here for matching up with a team like Kansas City and Todd Bowles. We can't uh, say enough about him and how outstanding he is as a defensive mind, and you know what he's able to do scheme wise with that personnel to maximize, you know, his options and and you know have a chance against a team like the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl and hold them to nine points. You know, I mean that's crazy. The the Chiefs in the Super Bowl kick three field goals. That's it. That's the entire scoring output that they had. So um, credit to Jason Light for assembling this unit, Todd Bowles, a sensational coordinator, and those players executed, and um, <laughs> they had their way with the Chiefs, and it was a really impressive uh, performance by the Bucks defense. Scarecrow Boat says, do you think the Bills would have had a more competitive game against the Buccaneers? Yeah, I think that's fair to say that. I'll stop short of saying that the Bills would have won the game. You know, Tampa Bay was prepared. They played their best game of the season. They had a masterful game plan and execution on both offense and defense. So I don't think it would be intellectually honest to say, yeah, the Bills would have beat the Buccaneers. But knowing what we know about um, the Chiefs and some of their dynamics for that game and you know not having their normal offensive line really going out there with four backups and you have a, a guard playing right tackle and you have your right tackle playing left tackle with Mike Remmers, who's already a bad player, you know, it, it was um, it was not a, a great situation for them, and um, you know I think the Bills would have certainly delivered a more competitive outing uh, against Tampa Bay than Kansas City did. But you got to give Kansas City credit; they left no doubt. They took it to the Bills. They beat them. They earned the right to play in that game. Vin says, "Joe, did you have a rooting interest, not monetarily motivated, in the Super Bowl?" I wanted to see Kansas City lose. Now that I feel Buffalo is a legit contender, I do not want to see another team look unbeatable. And Brady no longer bothers me now that he wears a different jersey. 
After seeing what Tampa did, all I can think about was Buffalo being more efficient at running the ball. Nobody thinks that either Ronald Jones or Leonard Fournette are elite backs, so I do not believe that Buffalo needs an elite back, but to be more efficient. Wanted your opinion on a veteran like Mark Ingram. Like you, I have no interest in paying big money to running backs, but now Buffalo is in a bit of unfamiliar territory. They are now a destination for players looking to get a title. If Ingram was interested in playing for Buffalo on a team-friendly deal, would you have any interest in him? Do you feel he still has anything left in the tank to help Buffalo? If not Ingram, are there any other free agent backs out there that would interest you? So on your first question about my rooting interest for the Super Bowl, well, I did have a rooting interest that was monetarily motivated and was my desired team to win the game. I had money on Tampa Bay. And I thought Tampa Bay was going to win the game, so I took the money line um, because I didn't need the points. Right? They gave I, the the line was plus three and a half for Tampa Bay. I didn't need those points, so I took the money line and, and cashed out on Tampa Bay. But you know, I've got a lot of friends uh, that are Tampa Bay fans. Whether that's Trevor Sikama, my coworker at the Draft Network. You know, I work with Jake Arians, who is Bruce Arians' son. I've had some really great interactions with Bruce Arians and Harold Godwin, their offensive line coach. Um, you know, so I I was rooting for them. I wanted them to win the game, and I had cash on it. So it was a nice marriage of my monetary, <laughs> uh, monetarily motivated interest and the team that I wanted to win winning the game. Um, as far as Ingram goes, my concern with it is that I don't think that he makes the backfield more athletic. And if the Bills add to this mix of Singletary and Moss, I would want that to be a player that brings a different skill set to the table. To me, Mark Ingram, at 32 years old, he has delivered the best possible career arc that Zach Moss could ever imagine. I think they're stylistically um, similar, but you know, like Ingram's that pinnacle of that type of downhill back that is physical and explodes into contract and really makes guys make business decisions. Where in, you know Moss hopes that he can be that type of player. So. You know, I think that would be a benefit to the room for sure. And if he would come in and take a minimum deal, sure, like that would be fine. I, I feel like he did hit a wall this year uh, for Baltimore, and you know he's thirty. He was thirty-one this past year, so you know that could just be him. Just he's plateaued. He's he's gone to decline. He's already uh, produced into his thirties, like most running backs don't. So, with that said, he was pretty effective in twenty nineteen. He was probably as good as he ever has been in twenty nineteen. So, yeah, like as a Frank Gore type addition to the room, I can get behind that. But, you know, what what leaves me wanting more um, when considering this idea is I, I want a guy that has some juice. And I don't think that Ingram provides that, especially at age 32. I mean, he was never overly dynamic as an athlete. So, you know, we're talking 32 years old, Mark Ingram. You know, we're just talking about a downhill guy. Marco says, I've been seeing a lot of mock drafts lately with the Bills going linebacker. What do you think is the likelihood that the Bills will re-sign Matt Milano? I've heard that number is around $14 million. So it's a good question, Marco, and I'm guilty of this. I put out a mock draft last week, um, my 5.0 mock draft, and I had the Bills drafting a linebacker, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, out of Notre Dame at pick 30. And I think what this comes down to is Brandon Bean's comments recently about Matt Milano and you know, the two things that he said that stand out the most to me about Milano is number one, Milano has to focus on how he can stay healthy for 16 games. 
And number two, that Matt Milano has earned the right to see what his free agent market bears. And that was some messaging to me that signaled, yeah, I don't know that they're going to bring him back. And we're talking about, like you said there, $14 million. I've seen on the low end, $11 million. On the high end, $14 million a year for Matt Milano. And the Bills don't have that type of cash on hand right now, um, given the salary cap cap restrictions and you know Darrell Williams being a free agent and a host of other meaningful players. And if you're going to commit that type of money to Matt Milano, you'd, you'd like to know that he's going to be healthy for 16 games and that he makes a, an impact that is commensurate with that type of uh, payday. So it, it's a lot to ask. And um, I think... I think I gained from Brandon Bean that uh, we should be preparing for life without Matt Milano. And with that said, you know, that creates a big hole at linebacker. And I think naturally mock drafters are trending towards, okay, well, uh, seems like the the logical path to do. I think there's value there. Um, At 30, potentially, if you can get a Wusu Koromoa in the second round, I really like Jabril Cox uh, from LSU as a space matchup linebacker pursuit style player in a four, three. Um, so there's options there, but, um, I think that's the line of thinking. And right now, and at any point with mock drafts is we're just trying to present scenarios, you know, based on logic. And, and I think when you consider the the big free agents that the bills have Darrell Williams at right tackle, John Feliciano at guard and Matt Milano at linebacker, um, they're going to want to value keeping Josh Allen protected and maybe, um, see what they can find in the draft. So I think that's what's leading to um, you seeing a lot of mock drafts lately with the Bills going with a linebacker in the first round. RockAuto.com is a family business that's been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices that you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why would you spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck Make sure you write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need over at rockauto.com. Next one comes from Mark who says, I was wondering what are your thoughts about the window of time the Bills have to win a Super Bowl? Well, Mark, the good news is that it's open right now. The Bills were in the AFC Championship game. There was only one game played after the last Bills game, and that's not uh, a normal thing for us to say. I think how long that window stays open is tied back to two things. Number one, Josh Allen remaining elite. Number two, roster construction. Brandon Bean has to keep the right guys. He has to not pay the wrong guys. And most importantly, he's got to draft well. Because if you're going to replace talent, if you're going to get deeper, If you're going to upgrade, you're going to be paying these players a whole lot more than you have been, and that's going to put the onus back on the draft so you can get meaningful contributors at low salaries, and that happens through draft picks. Mormon 2020 says, Blaine Gabbert has a Super Bowl ring. What? Shady has two Super Bowl rings in two years. How do you feel about his Hall of Fame prospects? 
I think he would have gotten in on stats alone, but two rings to end his career are just the icing on the cake, even if he was not a major contributor, good for him. So yeah, let's start there. And he was inactive in the Chiefs win, and he didn't play a single snap for Tampa Bay. So um, I think being part of the team, though, does matter, right? Like, sure, it didn't show up in the box score or on the field, but you know, Shady McCoy was one of their the rostered players for both teams, and you know, you make an impact um, for your team even if you don't play, if you're on it. So good for him. I don't want to take anything away from it, but yeah, he didn't play or do anything on the field for those two wins. So is LaShawn McCoy a Hall of Famer? Well, he has six Pro Bowls. He was twice an All-Pro. He's a member of the 2010s All-Decade team. He has 15,000 yards exactly from scrimmage, which is 26th all-time. I'd say he has a Hall of Fame resume. I don't think he's a, a first ballot Hall of Fame guy, but I think he should eventually get in. He'll have to wait a few cycles, but the accolades are really impressive, and I think there's a stretch, a long stretch of time, where LaShawn McCoy was correctly considered one of the best running backs in the NFL. So I think he deserves it. Only 25 people in the history of the NFL have more yards from scrimmage. I think that says a lot. That's probably the statistic to me that means the most in making the case for Shady as a Hall of Famer. Ben says, we keep hearing pin and pull this offseason as a reason we couldn't run. There must be more to it. Dable chose not to run that. I don't believe we avoided something that worked in the past because it was successful. So what are some reasons we didn't run it? Is it not effective against six-man boxes? Feliciano's tweet about running yesterday makes me think he's out this offseason. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting by Feliciano to what I thought cast some shade at the Bills for being a pass-heavy team. And it doesn't give me much confidence that Feliciano will be back, and I'm honestly okay with that. Um, I, I don't want to pay him five, six, seven million dollars a year because I think he's I think he's a below average pass blocker, and this is a passing offense. So no, I don't want to pay him a ton of money, despite the leadership and edge that he brings to the table. So regarding the pin and pull and why Brian Dable chose not to run that, and um, you know some of the thought process behind it. I've said this already a few times on the podcast, but when you are getting six-man boxes as frequently as the Bills were, you shouldn't have to do anything extra. The Bills ran the ball against six or less defenders in the box, the fourth most in the NFL, 203 attempts, and they finished 18th in yards per attempt. Get a hat on a hat and get yards. Like You're getting the most favorable run looks you could imagine. You shouldn't have to do all this diverse scheme stuff. Get a hat on a hat, move some people out of the way, and get yards. Nothing more should have been required. So I think that's why Dable didn't choose to run it, because he's thinking to himself, I got exactly the look I want. Didn't work out. Kid Charlemagne said, who currently on the O-line would you consider a power run blocker? How could we transform the line to be able to do that while still protecting Allen, thus giving us the option as we see tonight to run when we want to? And I think he's referring to the Buccaneers. 
Uh, so I would say John Feliciano, Cody Ford, those are power run blockers. The thing about the entire group is that none of them are power deficient outside of Mitch Morse. And Mitch Morse is a good positional blocker, and he's an outstanding pass blocker. These are all big, powerful guys. You would look at the makeup of this group left to right and say, the Bills should be a good run-blocking offensive line. I think that speaks to a couple of things. I think when you're a pass-heavy team and you don't run the ball with much frequency, it takes away from that. You're not going to be as effective running the ball because you're not in that rhythm and consistency. So I think that plays into it a little bit. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the Bills got the right makeup to run the football. Uh, I think that's why I I go back to running back talent uh, as something that bothers me the most when we talk about why the Bills' run game was ineffective last year because they got good looks, they've got good blockers. It just didn't have anything dynamic in the backfield. I think that is the root of it to me in a lot of ways. It's not the only thing. It all works together. It all matters. Scheme wasn't good enough. The blocking wasn't good enough. The running backs weren't good enough. But it's hard to look at that offensive line and see these big physical dudes that I've watched in college and in other places be effective run blockers, and then all of a sudden they can't do it. I think it's a combination of all those things. Chris, who is a new UK convert to the NFL and the Bills, said... So I was listening to a Super Bowl preview, and they were talking about how when things break down, Mahomes looks to Kelsey, and Kelsey looks to separate for him. Thinking about our games this season, when teams did a good job on digs and the wide receiver core, we didn't seem to have that option as a go-to. In fact, Beasley seems to make those little under moves for the most part. That's really the question. Is that purely a scheme thing, and Knox or whoever is blocking, or is it a player thing would you say I think there are numerous games against us this year where teams cut us up with tight ends not in Kelsey's league and the Colts game comes to mind is that something that we need to work on training if they want that option or is it going to require a specific talent to make that happen maybe both well I think the you know no it wasn't Knox or or tight ends when things broke down for Josh Allen he found Stefan Diggs and Gabriel Davis. Now, having more options is better. And I think being able to rely more on tight ends and, and running backs in the passing game would be an overall benefit to Josh Allen in the scheme. I want to go back to these numbers because, because I think they are interesting and they tell a story. The Bills were number one in the NFL when it comes to receiving production from wide receivers. They enjoyed 3,897 yards from wide receivers. Over 80% of the Bills' passing game yardage came from wide receivers. Number 29 in tight end production, 458 yards. Number 29 in running back production, 406 yards. So this is a wide receiver-centric offense. But I think getting more from tight ends and running backs in that department is obviously going to be a benefit to the scheme and Josh Allen. The next one comes from Don. Grandpa Don. This is actually my grandfather. He sent in a DM as well. So two family members uh, coming through with questions this week. Uh, Grandpa Don says, can you please give us a breakdown on the bonus money list 
for the playoffs and for the Pro Bowl. I hope I did this right. Grandpa Don, you did it right. You sent me a Twitter DM, and uh, I appreciate that. So I I don't have the numbers for this year, but I can tell you what they are uh, based on previous years, which should give us some type of an idea. When it comes to the Pro Bowl, that really is unique to each player and the structure of their contract and what the incentives are for making the Pro Bowl. But as for the actual game, which we did not have this year, in 2020, each player on the winning team got $70,000, and each player on the losing team got $35,000. In terms of postseason pay, um, in 2019, if you were in the wild card round and you were on the team that won the division, you get $31,000. If you were on the team that did not win the division, you got $28,000, regardless if you win or lose Every player gets the same amount. So if you won your division and played in the wild card round, you get $31,000. If you played in the wild card round and were the road team, you get $28,000. For the divisional round, each player gets $31,000, regardless of what player it is or if you win or lose. The conference championship, $56,000 per player, whether you win or lose, and regardless of what player. So, you know, the long snapper makes the same as the quarterback. And the teams that advanced to the Super Bowl last year, again, 2019, uh, they made $124,000 per player on the winning team and $62,000 per player on the losing team. So there you go. That's the breakdown. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Yeah, the football season might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and NHL seasons are in full swing. And BetOnline.ag even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. They have real-time updated odds and props on almost anything that you can imagine. BetOnline also has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. And it's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head on over to the website, BetOnline.ag, and use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Again, betonline.ag for a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with our promo code locked on. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Twiddle Winks says there has been chatter flying around on Twitter about how the Bills should target JJ Watt and/or Richard Sherman this offseason. I believe Watt has one year left on his current contract, but that Sherman is a free agent. Do you think it is realistic or a good idea for the Bills to go after one or both of them? If the Bills could only land one, which one would you prefer? Thank you for your thoughts and go Bills. I want to read Emily's question as well because it ties into this and then I'll answer. Emily said, I have seen a few articles lately about J.J. Watt potentially coming to the Bills. I didn't put too much stock in it, but curious on your thoughts. I'd love it if J.J. Watt came to the Bills, but since we already have such an expensive D-line, It doesn't really seem like a realistic scenario. Am I missing something? So the first question was, would I rather have Sherman or Watt or both? Um, I would much rather have Watt. Sherman Sherman is a good football player, and he's a very scheme-specific player. If you're going to play cover three, like the Bills do, great. He's really good in press coverage. He stays leveraged, and he's a good tackler. He's a physical player. He doesn't make you more athletic. He doesn't add any speed to your secondary. So 
there's going to be some matchup issues with him. You know, if, he's not going to be able to run with Tyreek Hill or come close to it. You know, he's a he's a very unathletic player. So scheme specific, role specific type players, sure, I can get behind Richard Sherman. J.J. Watt um, would really interest me and kind of building off of Emily's question about the contract and if he could be available and all that type of stuff. J.J. Watt is on the books right now for the Houston Texans next year for one year left on his deal and $17.5 million owed to him. Well, that $17.5 million is completely cuttable. The Texans can cut him and they would accumulate no Ted cap and they would save exactly $17.5 million against the cap, something they probably will do. Now, they could trade him and get something back for him. I don't think they would get a lot back for him. You think about Calais Campbell um, with the Jaguars, and he was sent to the Ravens, and all they had to give up was a fifth-round pick. And I think that would be a very similar um, case study for us to consider in this idea. Um, So, yeah, I'd give up a fifth-round pick for J.J. Watt, but you'd have to restructure the deal. You can't pay him $17.5 million next year. I think he's still a very effective player. And I think he would be great for the football team, but you not not at seventeen and a half million. And the and the real challenge there is, you know, when you have only one year deals, it's hard to really structure a deal in a way that is team friendly, where you can defer some salary to you know twenty twenty two, where the Bills have a lot more flexibility when it comes to the cap. So it's a lot to think about. I would much rather have Watt than Sherman, but I'll be a. Uh, um, I'll be the boring guy here and say that I don't think either one winds up being a bill for next season. Next one comes from Kevin, who says Joe Biscaglia said on his recent pod that he could see the Bills cutting Mitch Moore, saving $5 million and giving that to Feliciano and have him be the center. What are your thoughts? He said Morse isn't a good fit for the run game that could be tweaked in the offseason. Second, if we cut John Brown, do you see them bringing in a vet at a low cost or rolling with Davis? I don't want the Bills to cut Mitch Morse at all. I think he's I think he's their second best offensive lineman. Dawkins is the best, and I think that Morse is number two. And that center position is so important, not just for blocking, but for protection calls and um, you know, being on the same page with the quarterback. So yeah, like miss me with this idea that the Bills should cut Mitch Morse, save five million dollars and give it to Feliciano. Like, no thanks at all to that. Um I'd rather just let Feliciano walk maybe restructure uh, Mitch Morse's deal and start Cody Ford at right guard. I don't know. I, I, this doesn't interest me at all. Um, as far as the John Brown situation, if the Bills cut him, I think they need to replace him. And hopefully what that means is the Bills will maybe extend John Brown, add a, another year to his contract, and you know spread out the payments a little bit so that they don't pay him as much this year and, and um, can add some relief. But if they wind up cutting him and – just saving like around $8 million for releasing Brown. You know, I think you do have to look at a guy like a Kenny Stills to come back and be that receiver. This is a wide receiver-centric offense. You know, it's 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 one of those deals where, you know, if you're a run-heavy team, you want to make sure you have two backs. If you're going to run 12 personnel and use two tight ends all the time, then you're going to need two good tight ends. Well, if you're a 10 personnel, 11 personnel heavy team, and you're putting three and four wide receivers on the field on nearly every snap offensively, well, then all of a sudden you don't need one or two receivers. You need like three, four, five good receivers that you trust. And um, if John Brown's not back, they need a player that can do John Brown things, which is stretch the field, um, you know, beat press coverage, 
separate quickly, you know, do all the stuff that John Brown does. And, and Gabriel Davis isn't that player. Gabriel Davis is a big down the field ball skills type guy. He's not a guy that's going to shake loose from press coverage, uncover quickly. He's not really going to help you in the RPO game that much. So yeah, like if you cut John Brown, you create a hole. So I need John Brown back or I need somebody that can do John Brown things for this offense because they put three, four wide receivers on the field nearly every offensive snap. David says, my question is about game day roles and roster construction. I'm looking at Roberts as wide receiver six and kick returner one, Taiwan Jones as RB3 and Gunner, and Isaiah McKenzie as wide receiver five slash factor back. I feel the need to merge some of these roles together, like perhaps find another DB to be a full-time gunner like maybe a Dane Jackson and an RB3 that's active on game day and actually fills a pass-catching or gadget role while returning kicks or punts or a new wide receiver 5-6 to do the same. You hate to mess with what works on special teams, but with Jones, McKenzie, and Roberts all unrestricted free agents and it seems the opportunity is there to consolidate some of these roles, who should I pay attention to in the draft that can add the speed element to the offense while taking on kick and punt return roles as well. I got the answer for you, David. It's a slam dunk. It's Florida wide receiver Kadarius Tony, six foot, 193 pounds, caught 70 passes last year, 977 yards, 10 touchdowns, average eight and a half yards after the catch for his career. Super dynamic player. He caught seven of his nine targets, 20 yards or more down the field. So he's really added that vertical receiving ability to his, um, you know, the stuff that he did at Florida in terms of jet sweeps and taking handoffs and creating quick, uh, you know, creating after the catch after a quick completion. He also averaged 11 and a half yards per punt return, had a touchdown. Oh, by the way, he was a high school quarterback that has a big time arm. They said that he had the best arm on Florida's team last year. I talked to Jim Nagy about Kadarius Tony. Uh, Nagy's the executive director of the senior bowl who he just watched for an entire week in Mobile. They said that Tony can throw the ball 70 yards. So I get my kick returner, punt returner. I get my guy that can create after the catch. I get my guy that can win vertically down the field. I got a guy that can do gadget stuff, whether that's throw a pass or, you know, do jet sweeps and just get involved in creative ways. You get that all in Kadarius Tony. So if the Bills want to get a player like that at pick 30, that's the guy you want. Tyler says, first, now that he's a free agent and Josh has established himself, is there any on-field reason to bring back Matt Barkley versus drafting a guy in the sixth or seventh round and lucking into Gardner Minshew? Yeah, I don't I don't think you can – that can't be your plan. Your plan at backup quarterback can't be draft somebody in the sixth or seventh round and hope that you get a player that's Gardner Minshew. Um Sixth and seventh round quarterbacks are very underwhelming with their career arcs. Look it up. I, I I brought this up when people were concerned about Jake Fromm and if the Bills were to cut him, that there'd be some really exciting career that they would miss out on. And I shared a, you know the a chart of all the quarterbacks since like 2002 that were drafted in the fifth round, and you know nobody had a meaningful career. So. It's just if your roster is going to be as good as the Bills are, you can't be one snap away from handing the reins to this football team to Matt Barkley or 
a sixth or seventh round rookie. So like, just give me Davis Webb in that scenario. If you don't want to bring back Matt Barkley, which I can take it or leave it, Davis Webb is the most interesting backup quarterback option to me. Tyler had a couple more questions. He said, what is your opinion on the recent college football debate of the 2019 LSU Tigers versus the 2020 Alabama team? In your opinion, who had the better roster? In my opinion, I will choose LSU. I think that the swagger they played with was unmatched by any other team in college football. Which brings me to my last question, which is, what three players on the Bills play with that almost arrogant-like swagger? So give me LSU 2019. I think they were a deeper and more complete team on offense and defense. I think they had a much better quarterback in Joe Burrow. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we saw that game when LSU went to Tuscaloosa in 2019 and beat the Tide. And, um, you know, I know that Mac Jones was the quarterback this year instead of Tua Tungavaloa, who was the starting quarterback in that loss for Alabama. But LSU was decisively better that day. And um, I think they would beat the 2020 Tide as well. As far as the Bills that play with the most swagger, um, the three players that came to mind, number one, Josh Allen. I think that's very obvious. Um, Just a fiery dude on the field. Number two, I put down Micah Hyde. And you're probably like, huh? But Micah Hyde doesn't do anything super flashy or like get in people's faces or He's not like a chirpy guy, but I think when you say arrogant like swagger, the way that he's willing to bait throws and disguise his intentions and move off his spots, that screams arrogant swagger to me, and uh, that's why I picked him. And number three, Dawson Knox. I mean, Dawson Knox, when presented with the opportunity to go out of bounds, he will slow down, allow the defenders to catch up, and create an opportunity for him to like stiff arm the dude or just be physical and run him over. And, and I think that's arrogant swagger if uh, you know if I've ever seen it. So Josh Allen, Micah Hyde, and Dawson Knox. Next one comes from Justin who says, Hey Joe, after listening to the wide receiver pod and listening to the possible cut candidate in John Brown, I didn't want to hear any talk of cutting smoke. I like what he brings to the offense, but the offense was very productive without him like you pointed out. I agree with Davis not being ready for the true number two role. What about Beasley taking over the number two role? He would have had over 1,000 yards if not for getting hurt before the postseason. Also, if we did cut smoke, make Beasley the number two option and Knox takes a step forward, then number three could go to Davis and maybe pick up another wide receiver in the draft. And he notes that if the Bills' receiving options were number one, Diggs, number two, Beasley, number three, Davis, number four, that addition at wide receiver and then number five being a tight end like Knox taking a step forward you know what would I think about that and Justin did clarify that he didn't mean Beasley being the number two receiver and not playing in the slot he means number two option so look yeah I mean you're not gonna when Diggs is your top option and Beasley's your your second option that's good that's really good I think they need that guy like John Brown that can do a bit of everything to really round out the group, add that vertical element, and be able to win at all three levels of the field. So my concern about Davis as that third option is that I don't know that he's a three-level guy. And um, that that creates some some pause for me because I think that's that's needed for the Bills to have the spacing that they want. So that's why 
you know, did the Bills like what they saw in Kenny Stills? So if they can't work something out with John Brown, then Kenny Stills is the guy that I would look at and say, yeah, I think that's kind of that three-level guy. That makes sense. But, you know, I still want – I'm fine with Diggs and Beasley being your one and two, but I need that that next guy to not be Davis because I need a more complete player. That That's where I'm going with with this. Andy says, I was listening to the Bills Beat podcast reviewing needs and priorities for the offseason. They mentioned that Micah Hyde is underpaid but speculated that he wasn't likely to receive any increases due to Bean and McDermott being high in Jaquan Johnson behind him. I'm not necessarily advocating for this, but it made me wonder, what do you think the trade market would be for Hyde given the level of his play with the value of his contract? What kind of return would you anticipate in draft capital or in a player-for-player trade. And I know you haven't reviewed the defense yet, but have you seen enough from Johnson to feel like he could step into a starting role without a huge drop-off from Hyde? So I think it's highly unlikely that Hyde has moved. I really do. Um, Brandon Bean talked about Micah Hyde and said that he doesn't feel like he's dropped off at all and that he could play several more seasons if he wants to. And maybe that's an opportunity for the Bills to give him an extension. And... Um, spread out some of his salary and give the Bills some cap relief now. But that wasn't your question. Your question was, if the Bills were to trade Micah Hyde, what could they get back in return? It's kind of difficult because, you know, he's not like 25 or 26 years old. I think he would net the Bills probably a third-round pick, a third and a sixth or something like that. Good God, just keep Micah Hyde. I don't want a third and a sixth-round pick. (laughs) I want Micah Hyde. Um and for me, as far as Jaquan Johnson goes, I think he's a backup. Um, he's small, and he's not very athletic. And, you know, we're talking about matching up with the Chiefs. Jaquan Johnson's too small and too slow to help you. He's physical, and he's great on special teams. And I think he, he does have a role to play in sub, you know, situationally. But I'm not. He's not going to be my post safety. I'm not going to play him down low. I don't know. He's he just doesn't have the traits that I'm looking for in a starter. So I think Jaquan Johnson's a role player, and he's in the right role right now. And I'm not. I'm not too eager to to see that expand. He's a good player at Miami. Um, physical, played above his traits for sure. But you know, this is the NFL, and he's a he's a tick slow and a tick undersized. All right, that's going to do it for us today here on the podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who took the time to send something in. As a reminder, you can have items addressed on Herd Mentality. The two ways you can send those to me, number one, a Twitter DM, at the Joe Marino on Twitter. Um, the DMs are open, so shoot me a message or email. Uh, Joe at thedraftnetwork.com is the email address. We're going to get started with our performance review series on defense tomorrow and um, start working our way through those positions just like we did on offense. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.